Welcome to Secrets True Crime, the disappearance of Jessica Hamby. I am your host, Amber Sitton. What is done in darkness will eventually come to light. That is the purpose of this podcast, to shine light on the disappearance of Jessica Hamby. Listener discretion is advised. The subject matter may involve violence, sexual content, murder, and adult themes. This episode does contain foul language. It is not suitable for younger listeners. This is episode 11 of season three of a serialized podcast, and the episodes are designed to be listened to in order. Jessica Leanne Hamby has been missing since January 3rd, 2018. At the time of her disappearance, the 24-year-old mother of three was a beautiful brunette with big hazel eyes. She had a head full of long, thick hair, was five foot two inches tall, and weighed approximately 125 pounds. In the four and a half years since Jessica was last reported to be seen, the stories regarding her disappearance and fate have been plentiful, and the facts scarce. We are starting from the beginning, and by the beginning, we are beginning with Jessica's life six months prior to her disappearance, as we bring to you the findings of our investigation in real time. In this episode, we are going to do something a little different. We received a lot of questions from listeners, followers on social media, and supporters of our Patreon site. We try to answer those as quickly as we can, but sometimes that just isn't possible since we are actively investigating and learning new information, then recording and bringing you that information through the podcast. In episode 10, we announced that we were setting up a phone line where you could leave us your questions for us to answer in a special Q&A episode. This episode will be the first of a two-part questions and answers series answering the most frequently asked and probing questions and providing you those answers and revealing new information not discussed before. Before we get started, though, we want to clarify a point from Episode 10 with some new information. Last time we talked about Eric Edwards Tahoe and Rocky West, who was arrested and charged with stealing it. We told you that, according to the information provided by former SBI agent Robbie Barton, the Tahoe was recovered in Birmingham at a car wash. There is another story that we have heard about law enforcement finding the Tahoe, that it was found at Rocky's mother's house. We wanted to confirm which of those stories were true, after yet another post to social media was made by Tiffany Cochran. In that post, Tiffany claimed that the Tahoe was found buried at Rocky's house. She also stated that she had been arrested for stealing the Tahoe, and unlike Rocky, she had done three years in prison for that charge. 
Before attempting to obtain records from the Birmingham Police Department, Michael reached out to Rocky's attorney for that charge, Tony Glenn. Mr. Glenn was not available and has not yet returned Michael's call, but according to a person in Mr. Glenn's office, the Tahoe was in fact found at Rocky's mother's home. We will continue our effort to confirm exactly where the Tahoe was located and the state of it, and we'll provide updated information in a future episode. After the last episode, Tiffany Cochran called and left a message on the Q&A line. Yes, this is Tiffany Cochran, and um, I just listened to the, pod- the last podcast. The reason why I didn't remember that I went to jail, because at the time of that, I was um, on the medication, and I I didn't remember, so that's why I didn't throw that out. And I'm getting really sick and tired of hearing mine and my sister's name, and we had nothing to do with it. We hope and pray every day that she gets found, just like everybody else. And if it keeps on, it's really getting to be more like slandering to me. So um, I feel like y'all need to get a hold of one of us and um, actually talk to us one-on-one. Before you go and and put stuff on podcasts that's not true at all. And another thing is the Tahoe situation. Raymond and Louise did not know anything about the Tahoe getting stolen. Me and Rocky West stole the Tahoe. I took the charges. I went to prison. Rocky never did. Rocky's never been to prison. And there, there's so much more that y'all are throwing out of like me and Stephanie. When it has nothing to do with us. And I, yeah, I had the best alibi, but I cannot, I, I didn't remember I went to jail. At that time, I'd been to jail back and forth three or four times. So I did, I wasn't even thinking, you know? Um, yes, I got cut off, but what, what I was saying was the thing is, um, y'all keep bringing up our names and y'all need to be contacting some other people. Because, you know, we didn't have nothing to do with it. We're not that type of person. Um, and, you know, I went to jail, like, a couple times in, in that last couple months. Had to go to prison for stealing the Tahoe. I didn't even know the, the, the girl. And why we say the girl is because I've never even met her. I've never seen her in person. I couldn't tell you nothing about her. Because I don't know her. So I'm not going to sit here and say, Jessica this, Jessica that. Because when you don't know somebody, you you don't say their name because you don't know them. So if you would like to get in contact with me and meet me and have a one-on-one uh, conversation with me, I would gladly do that. So uh, I'm going to give you my phone number. Uh, it's... When people call me, it's not been ringing, so you might have to leave me a message. But leave me a message, and uh, I will gladly meet you anywhere you want me to meet you, give you any statement, anything that I know. But when I don't know a girl, I don't say her name like that because I don't know her, never seen her before. So all this stuff that y'all are saying needs to stop, and it needs to stop now because it's really, really it, 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 I'm fixing to get a lawyer about it. So you need to contact me as soon as possible and meet me, and we can we can discuss we can discuss.
Tiffany also made a couple public comments on our YouTube channel. In one of the comments, she noted that she goes to jail all the time and can't remember the dates that she's been arrested. Another comment said, This is Tiffany Cochran, and I wanted to just say all of this is nonsense. First of all, I never met nor had heard of Jessica. Therefore, when I don't know someone, I say her or that girl, not by her name. And this being the truth about the Tahoe, me and Rocky stole it, period. Nobody offered us any money. We were just going down Elgin Cochran Road and seen the Tahoe on the side of the road because Rocky wanted to get back at Eric and go steal some stuff out of his room. Trannon, my husband at the time, was in jail and needed $700 to get him out, so we thought going to Eric's house and getting back what Eric stole from Rocky. But once we seen the Tahoe, we thought we could use the parts off of it, and we could get Trannon out of jail. So anyway, we got the Tahoe, and Rocky buried it in his field, so it was messed up after that period. His mother knew the Tahoe was there, too. So, of course, we were on the most wanted and hid from the police. I was on probation at the time. Rocky was not, so his mother said she would bond me out, but never did, not try. My mother came and got me out, and I took the charges for both of us, and I spent three and a half years on that Tahoe. Raymond never wanted to sell that Tahoe or anyone in the family, but I know for a fact that Tahoe was never at a shop. It was buried in Rocky's field. He knew before anyone that she was missing. Since Tiffany contacted us and obviously wanted this information to be publicly known, we want to address both her voice message and her comments. Tiffany was, in fact, arrested and charged with theft of property first on March 12, 2018, for stealing the Tahoe. She was also charged with obstructing justice on the same date when she used the name and social security number of her sister, Stephanie Cochran, to avoid summons, arrest, prosecution, or to impede a criminal investigation. Tiffany was released from jail a month later and appears to have gotten into trouble again over the summer of 2018. In August 2018, she was arrested for financial exploitation of an elderly individual second degree. The complaint for that arrest also includes 16 counts of fraudulent use of a credit card, theft of property third degree, two counts of unauthorized use of a vehicle, theft of property fourth, and forgery fourth. According to the complaint, Tiffany stole cash, keys, and at least one credit card from an elderly resident of Marion County and drove the woman's vehicle without permission. In December 2018, Tiffany was indicted on the charge related to stealing the Tahoe. In March 2019, Tiffany took a plea deal, pleading guilty to the financial exploitation of the elderly charge in exchange for having the credit card fraud, theft of property, and unauthorized use of a credit card dropped, and the obstruction charge and the theft of Tahoe charge dismissed once she paid restitution within 24 months. 
she was sentenced to 15 years and one day, with the sentence split between two years and six months in DOC custody, followed by 12 years of supervised probation. So while it is true that Tiffany was arrested and even indicted by the grand jury for stealing the Tahoe, she did not go to prison for that charge because it was dismissed in her plea agreement for committing multiple crimes against an elderly woman. Tiffany gave a couple reasons for not remembering that she was in the Russellville City Jail on the date that is widely believed to be the day that Jessica Hamby disappeared. I wouldn't dispute that she's been in and out of jail enough times that it might be difficult to keep up with the dates, especially years later, but we are not talking about her being asked where she was years later. Law enforcement tracked Jessica to the Edwards property within a few weeks of her disappearance, and everyone was being asked where they were on January 2nd and 3rd. Tiffany stated in interviews recorded in 2018 that she was questioned about Jessica. I have a difficult time believing that a few weeks after a three-day jail stint, Tiffany didn't remember that's where she was, especially considering her arrest was on a holiday. Tiffany also noted that the reason she didn't remember is because she was on medication at that time. If you recall, in the last episode, I noted that the records we obtained from the Russellville Police Department were very thorough and detailed. When Tiffany was booked into jail on January 2nd, 2018, she was asked if she was on any medication. According to the records, she told them she was not taking any medication, and her signature at the bottom of that form affirms all that. Tiffany's sister, Stephanie Cochran, also sent us a message after the last episode. I'm not going to read the entire thing today, but there is one very pertinent point. Stephanie said, I went to Tunica on New Year's, and we had been to Bill Street, but Tiffany wasn't with me. It was Brandy. All these comments by both Tiffany and Stephanie are just a continuation of the issues we noted in the last episode with all of their statements. They continually change, and many of them can be proven false, and this is no exception. As noted in the last episode, on New Year's Eve 2017, Stephanie posted a photo of herself and another woman. There is a very dramatic filter on the photo, but that woman sure looks like Tiffany Cochran to me. On January 1st, 2018, in the comments under that photo, Stephanie Cochran said, We in Memphis, Bill Street. Tiffany used the word slander, but I think she's missing a key requirement. It's not slander unless it's false information. Tiffany and Stephanie's own words, full of inaccurate and ever-changing statements, are what drew our attention to them, and they've added fuel to the fire by continuing to contact us with new versions of their stories that have already been exposed as untruthful. The truth doesn't change, but both of their stories sure have. Immediately after Tiffany left the voicemail, 
asking that we contact her to meet and discuss. Michael reached out to her to set up a time. To date, Tiffany has not responded. Tiffany's sister, Stephanie, was arrested again last week in Walton County, Florida, on misdemeanor drug-related charges. Rocky is currently in the Marion County Jail on drug charges, along with Eric Edwards and J.K. Abbott on bench warrants. I think that takes care of the prior business and updates, so let's get to the questions. All right, so the first question, uh, actually the first set of questions that we'll cover deals with the detox facility. So we'll start with, who did Jessica get into a fight with at the rehab detox center that caused her to leave? Could this fight have been a result of her knowledge of Jeremy Abbott's death and her telling police where to find him? Could this person have also known the Edwards, Abbott's, or Moats? and somehow notified them that Jessica had left the rehab center. So we don't know the name of the woman that Jessica allegedly got into an argument or altercation with. We're still a little troubled by the conflicting and changing stories regarding that whole event. Um, So we still have a lot of unanswered questions there. But the bottom line is, is we don't know this woman's name. We don't know if she has any ties to anyone connected to Jessica or Jeremy. I mean, we don't even know where she's from. We don't know if she's from that area or if she's from somewhere far away. It is our understanding that a lot of people came there for treatment from, you know, great distances. It's something we'd like to have more information on, but we just don't have it right now. Yeah, and... One of the employees that we talked to made it a point to tell us that these addicts that come to the detox facility, usually it's not their first rodeo. They've been through those facilities before. They know the rules. And more importantly, they know what it takes, what would have to happen for them to leave if they decided they didn't want to complete the program and they wanted to leave. And When that employee told us that, the impression that I got was it was at least possible in her mind that there may not have even really been an altercation. It could have been something that was staged to provide an excuse for Jessica and Brooke to leave on their own. On the other hand, you know, this has been described as an argument or an altercation To our knowledge, it's never been described as any kind of physical altercation, more as uh, like an argument or kind of bickering back and forth. And one thing that's been explained to us as well is that when people are in these um, facilities and they are going through detox, it is not unusual for them to not feel well and for there to be disagreements and sometimes even physical altercations. And You know, one thing that was pointed out to us is that it would usually have to be something very serious, um, maybe involve a weapon or something before someone would just be asked to leave, especially over just a verbal disagreement. You know, I think initially the one story that was told by an employee of the detox was that 
there was the altercation and and that Jessica and the other woman um, were both asked to leave. But yet another employee uh, gave an interview in which she said that she wasn't aware of that, that she was under the impression that they left of because they wanted to leave, that they made a plan and decided they were done and wanted to get out of there. The differing stories do leave us with just a lot of questions about what really happened and, and why Jessica did leave that night. So the next question is also on the same topic. It says, on the night she left detox with Brooke because of the altercation, you know, who was the altercation with? And it says, also, we know she was communicating with Alicia Motes through Eric Edwards' messenger. Do we know if it was actually Alicia? Could it have been Eric acting as Alicia, luring her over there? We do believe she was communicating with Alicia. It's pretty clear through some of the messages that Jessica and Alicia had resulted after they had spoken on the phone. We think one of those calls was made by Jessica and that she used someone else's phone because the minutes had not been put on her own phone yet. So the next question It says, does anyone else find it odd that she reached out to Alicia Motes? Does anyone else believe Alicia Motes set the plan in motion? Yeah, um, everyone who knows Jessica finds it very odd that she contacted Alicia Motes as soon as she checked out of the detox facility and that Alicia was truly the only person that Jessica made any attempt to go to. I believe many people have strong feelings about Alicia's potential involvement in Jessica's disappearance, and Jessica's dad, Keith, is definitely one of those. You know, we do know that Jessica had spent some time around Alicia. Um, She had been at the Resurrection Ranch detox in Hackleburg with her back in the spring into the early summer of 2017, and then we know that Alicia was at the same house that Jessica was at in Phil Campbell on the day that Jessica left for detox. So, you know, it is something that we we do wonder. I mean, was Jessica immediately contacting Alicia? Was it due to um, something that they had going or some conversation they had or some bond that um, had happened on the 28th, the day that Jessica checked into into the detox facility. But Jessica had so many other friends and family that she was close to. It is unusual and hard to understand why she chose Alicia Motes of all people. Yeah. So our next topic of questions uh, falls under persons of interest. These are questions about specific people that we've mentioned in the podcast who have come up during the investigation. And I'll start off with the first one. Uh, Do you feel that Travis Jackson was with Jessica at any point that morning? In looking at the evidence and everything that came up during the investigation about Rodney traveling through Red Bay all the way down to the job site for the bridge and Gilbert's trailer and the timing of that with the messages between Travis and and Jessica, it certainly seems like a very real possibility 
especially when you factor in that there was definitely a stop by Rodney in Red Bay, very, very close to where Travis was staying. So it, it definitely seems like a real possibility that Rodney could have picked Travis up and the two then traveled to the North Fork area where where Jessica was staying. But in the interview that I conducted with Travis, I confronted him specifically with that scenario and asked him about that, and he emphatically denied being there or seeing Jessica that morning. I believe he he even made comments that after their conversation ended on Facebook that he didn't talk to her again later that day or at any other time. And I'll add to that, too. Um, the information that we've received is our understanding that when Rodney was interviewed by law enforcement, he claimed he was simply going to work there at the bridge site that day and that he went to work that morning and he got there and it was too cold to work. And he said that they were sent home. And that's why, you know, he was only there about two hours. We believe that that is uh, inaccurate information. It is our understanding that it has been confirmed by another investigator that that same day that Gilbert Shaw worked 10 hours that day, speaking with supervisors and various people within that company, um, they wouldn't have just called off work because it was cold outside. They would have called it off, you know, if it were raining or snowing, um, but not just because it was cold. That wouldn't have stopped their work. So I'm not sure that the reason that he gave, that we're told that he gave law enforcement for why he was only there two hours that day, I'm not sure that that holds up. So the next question, and it's a little bit confusing the way it reads, so I'm just going to kind of summarize here. Uh, what they're wanting to know is, is they feel like Eric, Alicia, Derek, you know, are clearly involved in Jessica's disappearance or know something, and then also you know, there's Travis Jackson, and they also think that Mary and the Abbots could have some knowledge or involvement. But their problem is is connecting these two groups of people. I mean, how how do they connect? Yeah, so we found that most, if not all, of the names associated with Jessica around the time of her disappearance are connected in one way or another, and some of them have numerous connections. The primary connection is going to be drug-related. Almost all of these people either knew each other or knew of one another. There's a lot of crossover between the residents of Marion and Winston counties, which are both relatively small populations. Um, the population of Marion County is just under 30,000 people, and the population of Winston County is less than 24,000. So they're both rural communities and many of the residents are related in one way or another, if nothing else, through marriage. The drug world in these communities is even smaller. Eric Edwards had friends and even distant family in Haleyville, one of which both he and Jessica were known to have spent time at the man's house. Alicia and Derek also had strong connections to Haleyville, 
And one of those connections we've previously mentioned was Alicia's relationship with Daniel Luna. There are so many connections between these people, it'd take a few episodes just to detail the relationships that we know about. But the bottom line to all of it is that they were connected through drugs. So the next question, they wanted to know if Jesse Abbott and Eric Edwards were friends. We're not aware of any close relationship between the two. I would be surprised if they didn't know each other, but if they had a close relationship, we haven't heard about it yet. All right. The next question is um, also a little difficult to read, so I'll kind of paraphrase this. When Jessica stated that Mary told her who killed Jeremy, it leads me to believe Mary told her who ordered the killing, not who physically did it. The writer believes that Jessica already knew that part. Yeah, I mean, I I think that that's a viable theory, and it is a possibility. Yeah, I think a lot of the research and information that we've learned even indicates that a lot of people knew what went on and knew the answers to some of those questions, either from having been present when some of it happened or at least from hearing of it. And we revealed that an awful lot of people were even threatened to keep their mouth shut. I mean, Juan Ortega is a perfect example. When he was caught with Jeremy's phone, his response was that they're going to kill me. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to Jeremy Abbott's death, you don't come across many people outside of law enforcement who believe he committed suicide. I mean, it's pretty well accepted by people in that area and definitely in that group of people around the Haleyville area, that Jeremy was murdered. You know, nobody has acted surprised that we believe Jeremy was murdered and not a suicide. It it seems to be an accepted fact among many. That's outside of the drug world as well. I believe that uh, if anybody took the time to even talk to, um, you know, some of the local first responders, Um, in the area. I believe that some of them would probably even speak up and and say that they also have always believed Jeremy was murdered. All right. Uh, The next question is, did Rodney and Travis have Alicia lure Jessica there to the Edwards house? I mean, Alicia's friendly imitation seems contradicting to her and Jessica's tension. Well, the tension that has been reported was reported by Gilbert Shaw. And much of what Gilbert Shaw reported can be proven to be inaccurate. And I'll give you an example that we have not spoken of publicly. Um, One thing that Gilbert told Michael was that uh, he and Shane used to, Shane Reynolds used to hang out together a lot. Shane was at his camper a lot. And Eric was at his camper a lot. And he told Michael that after the third, you know, after the night of the second when and the morning of the third, Eric and Shane Reynolds quit taking his phone calls and quit coming by. Well, that's pretty easy to prove that that is a flat out lie because uh, we have Shane Reynolds' Facebook messages and Shane was an avid Facebook user. 
And uh, I don't have it in front of me, but I have um, looked it up to see how many times Shane told somebody he was at Gilbert Shaw's trailer at his camper um, after the third. And I think I found at least 10 different days. And then you add in there, there is some location data for Shane that was in Facebook. It it was not um, recording location data at the time that Jessica went missing, but it did start recording the data in February, if my memory serves me correctly. And uh, Shane was still spending a lot of time at Gilbert's. So it's interesting that uh, Gilbert chose to uh, mislead on that as well. So Gilbert is the one who said that there was tension between um, Jessica and Alicia, and there could have been, but you know, you you have to take the things that Gilbert said with a grain of salt because so much of it that he said is not truthful. As far as Rodney, Travis, Alicia, the Edwards, as, as far as Jessica being lured there, you know, that's something that I think that we've thought about and have discussed back and forth since we started this. Jessica seemed to have a plan from the moment she got her phone back in her hands. And the plan was getting to Alicia Motes. You know, was this something that was planned between Jessica and Alicia while they were at that residence together in Phil Campbell on the day that Jessica entered the detox facility? Did Jessica somehow have contact and communication with Alicia and others while she was in the detox? You know, we know she wasn't allowed access to her cell phone. She was allowed to use the landline to contact family. But a staff member was required by their policies um, to sit with her and listen to the call. Did someone in that facility have a contraband phone? Um, I'm told that that is something that um, that is known to have happened there. And, you know, I'm sure many other places like it. Did someone allow Jessica to have more access to the landlines than she was supposed to have? You know, we don't know what the answer is, but Alicia sent Jessica a pin to her location prior to the two having a conversation about Jessica getting a ride to Alicia. The two did have, you know, a couple phone conversations prior to those messages. But you have to wonder, if they had talked on the phone and planned for Jessica to come to Alicia already, then, you know, why were they having that conversation later on after Alicia had already sent Jessica her location. The next question, did Brooke and Alicia know of each other? To our knowledge, and from what Brooke indicated, she didn't know Jessica, Alicia, or any of the people that were at Gilbert's camper that night. We haven't located any information to dispute that. Was uh, John Deere, who is Travis Jackson, was he ever questioned about his movements that night? Absolutely. Um, and I kind of alluded to that earlier. I, I did interview Travis Jackson face-to-face for several hours. Uh, we had a very lengthy conversation. We talked about a lot of you know what he was doing um, and, and where the 
the conflicts seemed to come up between what he had told Jessica in messages and and what other statements and evidence seemed to indicate. So, um, yeah, I mean, the bottom line is I personally interviewed him face to face and asked several of these questions directly to him. So our next uh, section is going to be about the places of interest. And the first question says, I'm sure that the hunting club property has been checked for deer or trail cameras. Yeah, to our knowledge, other than a visit by myself, we don't know that anyone has has done an actual search of the property since very early on, it was said that Jessica spent most of the night and morning at the Edwards property on Elgin Cochran Road. And that's one reason I would say that it is probably unlikely that there has been a, an official coordinated search of that area because for so many years now, that's where the focus has been. The Nelos reports that indicate Otherwise, that place her near the hunting club and appear to have been disregarded for all these years. We can't rule out the hunting club, but we don't believe that that was her true location because she was connected to an IP address much of that time. The limited information we are able to obtain related to the IP address indicates it was someone's home internet as opposed to a mobile device IP. It was so brutally cold on January 2nd and 3rd of 2018, we suspect that her time outside in the elements, like she would have been in the hunting club area, was probably minimal. The next question was very similar. It just uh, says, has the area around the hunting club ever been searched? I think the same answer applies there. To our knowledge, there's been no formal search of that area. I did obtain consent from the property owner. I met with a representative from forestry at the hunting club location. I walked the area where Nilos indicated, and I even flew the drone uh, to get some footage of the trails and the area around there. But other than our personal effort, we aren't aware of there being an actual search of that area. The next two questions are related to the bridge. We had two questions about that and a theory that we've heard from the very beginning. The first question, one of the questions I would like to ask is in regard to the construction of the bridge on 43 when Jessica went missing. This may have been discussed in an earlier episode, but if so, I can't recall the details. I am from the area where Jessica was last seen, and it has been rumored all these years that Jessica may have been buried in or under the bridge during its construction. I was curious as to what phase or stage of construction of the bridge was in it during this time. Could this rumor even be a possibility? If so, is there any way it could be investigated? Does any sort of test exist that could determine if remains were present without the demolition of the bridge? I remember an episode where Kim mentioned that she was told that Jessica's body would never be found. Since Eric, Gilbert, and others who were last seen with Jessica 
worked on the construction of the bridge at one point in time, it seems very likely that they would have had the knowledge of how to place Jessica there without being found when they had the opportunity to do so. The second question says, has anybody thought to look in the bridge? I know there's a device people can use to see voids in the concrete or possibly more than that. Since listening, I have heard a rumor that she might be in the bridge, and I feel like that shouldn't be overlooked, considering there was a moment you mentioned someone had used equipment on the job site while they were building the bridge and that stuff was moved. I'm going to let Michael take this question. Yeah, so this theory and rumor usually presents itself as the idea that Jessica's body was concealed in the massive amount of concrete poured during the construction of the new bridge over North Fork Creek. That theory gained renewed energy when we revealed Gilbert's story about heavy equipment being operated at the work site in the early morning hours of January 3rd, 2018. The best we've been able to determine from the contractors for the bridge project, concrete work began sometime after Jessica went missing in the February timeframe. What we did learn from talking to both the primary contractor and the subcontractor responsible for concrete work was that for bridge projects, a Department of Transportation inspector must be present before and during the pouring of concrete on bridges. Those guys describe the inspector checking the boreholes that the pillars are poured into and that the inspector checked the bottom of the hole prior to pouring to be sure it was cleaned out, had solid contact with bedrock, and the rebar work was sufficient. These guys even talked about the inspector sometimes having to climb down into that hole so that he could make sure that it was ready for the concrete to be poured. They also told us that concrete is not poured in layered stages because that results in weakening. So the pillars of the bridge were all poured at once, and sections of the horizontal surfaces are poured one at the time. The inspector has to be there to observe that process from start to finish. The contractor stated that if someone messed with the concrete, putting something in it after it was poured and the inspector and crews had already left, it would still be very obvious the next day when workers showed up. All of that information was also confirmed with a Department of Transportation inspector as being accurate. That's actually the process they have to follow. None of the people we talked to that were involved in the bridge construction believe it would be possible for someone to sneak into the site at night or when workers weren't there to hide a body in the concrete without the crews becoming aware of it when they came back to work. I also want to point out here that the company that Eric, Gilbert, Rodney, and some of the others worked for was another subcontractor that was hired to clear and prepare the land for the work not to pour concrete, and not to perform work on the bridge itself. Gilbert was a heavy equipment operator, and his primary job was moving dirt around the site. We've spoken to the site supervisor, who did recall an instance where it looked like some of the equipment had been moved, 
but he wasn't sure when that occurred and seemed to think it was after Jessica had been reported missing in late January. As far as testing goes, uh, ground-penetrating radar is often used to detect voids beneath horizontal concrete, like what might occur from erosion or settling of the earth after concrete is poured. I'm being very specific there about horizontal concrete. I'm talking about like a foundation slab for a house. The types of voids that GPR can find underneath a slab can weaken the foundation of the slab and even cause it to collapse. So that's most likely the test that that the person that wrote in is talking about. What you have to understand is that GPR scanning of concrete has a very limited depth. Usually, it's less than two feet. And its accuracy diminishes greatly as depth increases and if the concrete contains stuff like wire mesh, multiple layers of rebar, and other materials, the type of stuff that you would definitely find in a bridge site because you want that to be very, very strong. That's probably the primary and definitely one of the reasons for having an inspector present when concrete for bridges and road work is done. Basically, it's a lot easier and more reliable to ensure the process is done correctly the first time than to go back later with something like ground-penetrating radar to try and identify potential problems. So no one that you spoke with, the contractor, do you, I mean, nobody felt that the bridge, that her being in the concrete in that bridge was a viable possibility. Not only that, every one of them said that that's not even possible. I mean, exact words. It's not even possible for a site like that. That's a very large bridge with a lot of concrete, but the way they have to do it, the inspectors that have to be present, they don't even think it's possible that you could do it undetected. So we're going to move on to our next uh, general topic and it's about phones and messages. The first question. This is just a thought, but having listened to the episodes and the time she was in Hamilton according to the Nelos information, I'm curious if she was talking about walking away from a drug deal or a manufacturing event that was taking place around that time. Just a thought I've had. Well, I don't think that we could say that something along those lines could not be a possibility. There seemed to be a great deal of manufacturing going on in the area at the time. Eric Edwards, Shane Reynolds, Travis Jackson, and even Rodney have all been charged with manufacturing a controlled substance, and some of them have been charged with it numerous times. Some of them have done prison time, a great deal of prison time on those charges. We didn't talk about it ahead of time, but I'll throw out there some of this location data that that we've had to go through. It's not really relevant to the podcast, so we haven't talked about it. it. And it occurred days, maybe even months after Jessica went missing. But anybody that's investigated or is familiar, especially with meth, and users of meth that tend to cook their own, 
you can look at some of this location data and you know what these guys are doing. I mean, it's, it's clear as day to somebody like us when, you know, a couple of phones go out in the middle of the woods and they're out there for 30 or 45 minutes and then they leave and then their best friend comes along exactly 12 hours later and is out there for about the same amount of time. And then they all get together and drive up to Tennessee or something. I mean, we know what's going on. So very good question. Very good point. So the next question, supposedly the Edwards, Raymond, would threaten to shoot trespassers on the property. My curiosity is wondering if it wasn't autocorrected. Did she really mean to say they are going to shoot me for walking? If I'm not mistaken, she also tried to call Eric. So with this one, the exact message said, hey, they ain't gonna shoot me for walking. She did call Eric Two minutes after she sent that message, we certainly can't rule out that the autocorrect might have altered the message, but I do question whether autocorrect would change anything to the word ain't, because ain't, ain't a word. Others have suggested that maybe the word walking was intended to be talking. The truth is, is I mean, we just don't know. I mean, I do believe the message Maybe it hasn't been properly interpreted all these years. The Edwards and the Motes have used this message to bolster their claim that Jessica left the Edwards property walking that morning while everyone else was asleep. We know that to be a lie because of, you know, Nelos. Um, it proves that Jessica could not have been at the Edwards property when she sent that message. But it also shows that Eric Edwards, for one, was definitely not asleep. You know, it shows that Eric's phone was at the Edwards property when Jessica sent him that message. And within minutes, his phone left his house and drove to the same general area that Nelos indicates Jessica was in when that message was sent. You know, obviously, the message had meaning. And while none of us may know what that meaning is at this moment, I think that Eric Edwards knew exactly what Jessica meant by it. And that's why he drove straight to her location. Exactly. The next question is is very similar. Did Jessica's last text, they ain't, actually the, the question writer wrote, they aren't going to shoot me for walking. Did that text end with a question mark? Just curious. I've questioned that statement also. Who is they? It did not have a question mark, um, although I'll note that Jessica was messaging in the common style that didn't include a lot of punctuation. And um, I think who they is is the million-dollar question right now. Exactly. It's um, not very common for someone, even in abbreviated text messages, to use an undefined pronoun like they if there's a chance that the receiving the person receiving the message isn't going to know who they're talking about, who that they is, is very important. Join us next time as we further explore what happened to both Jessica Hamby and Jeremy Abbott. And as we continue to investigate 
and push for justice for them both. If you have any information about the disappearance of Jessica Hamby or the death of Jeremy Abbott, please email me at secretstruecrime at gmail.com or call our confidential tip line at 205-282-0740. Michael and I will ensure that all information gets to the right place right away. If you are left still wanting even more content, please check us out on Patreon. We have it filled with great information on Susan and Evan, Eric and Gypsy, and we will be adding additional content about Jessica and Jeremy. This podcast is an independent podcast. That means that everything that goes into making this podcast is done and funded by me. All of the investigative tools and resources are provided by Echo 7 Foxtrot. The tragedies we highlight and investigate have had a tremendous impact on the victims, loved ones, and friends. We don't burden them with additional expenses to cover their cases. We donate our time and talents because we want to help and hope to find the answers they need that are so long overdue. For as little as $5 per month, you can receive exclusive access to members-only photos, videos, early access to episodes, and much, much more. By becoming a patron, you too are helping us help these families. Patreon.com slash Secrets Crime. I'll also post the link on our Facebook page. If you are enjoying this podcast, be sure to follow or subscribe in your podcast player of choice and by giving us a five-star rating and review. We are active on social media and will often share photos of Jessica and Jeremy. Follow Secrets True Crime on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Secrets Crime. This episode was co-written by me and Michael Fleming. The audio production for this podcast is by Kane Power at precisionpodcasting.com.